The Biden administration wants the federal fleet of cars and light trucks to be all electric. Most of the fleet is acquired and managed by a section of the General Services Administration. Here with more on the plans, the acting deputy director of GSA Fleet, Christina Kingsland. Ms. Kingsland, good to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. And the assistant commissioner for travel, transportation and logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, Crystal Philcox. Ms. Philcox, good to have you on. Thanks. Good to be here. And give us the state of the GSA fleet, not only how many cars and light trucks, but you have a certain percentage that is electric already, correct? We do. The electric vehicle market is just really taking off. So we've got this year so far, we have purchased almost 20% of our orders have been electric. So it's a huge bump from last year. We won't end the year probably that high, but we are really pushing forward to meet industry where they are and to make sure that we are working with agencies closely to fulfill their missions and do that in a way where we can meet the administration's goal of electrifying the fleet. You know, we were actually at the Fed Fleet Training Conference a couple of weeks ago in conjunction with the Washington Auto Show, and it was amazing to see all the vendors that were highlighting all of their EVs. Uh, so electrification, I think, really is the future. Safe to say, though, that a lot of the segments are really not quite fully baked yet. For example, pickup trucks, there are electric ones out. They're very expensive. There's not that much choice. Fair to say that it's the sedan, really, where it's the most mature market-wise? I'll jump in here on that one, Tom. You know, the federal fleet is a working fleet, so we do have a lot of pickups in the federal fleet. I would highlight, though, that the SUV market and even the minivans, we have quite a few of those in the federal fleet, and there are a lot of options, both in full battery electric and the plug-in hybrid PHEVs. So there is some good coverage out there, but of course, there's still a ways to go to satisfy all the mission requirements of the federal fleet. And that's why the administration put the mandate out there for 2027 to give time for the federal fleet to grow with industry and move into, you know, as new models are available, we're adopting them early. And by 2027, getting to that 100% of all light duty acquisitions being zero emission vehicles in 2035 then for all, right? Because there are lots of bus options as well. We have quite a number of buses in the federal fleet as well. Yeah, maybe get one of those flywheel buses from Copenhagen from 1950. (laughs) I'm just kidding on that one. But with respect to the nameplates, I mean, there's a Buy American requirement. Does that include a Japanese nameplate if it's manufactured, say, in Tennessee or somewhere in the U.S.? So we're actually from the GSA fleet side of the house and our purchasing contracts are actually subject to the Trade Agreements Act. So um, it's not quite the same as the Buy American Act. So wherever we have trade agreements with countries and so it it is a little bit different, but the vast majority of our business, of course, is through the big three U.S. suppliers and then resellers as well. We have some really good partnerships with American resellers too. But if someone wanted something not a four-door sedan and not the large black SUV that cabinet officials like to be driven around in, they could have, say, a Toyota all-electric SUV, provided it was made on U.S. soil? We do actually have some Toyotas on contract through our secondary suppliers. Toyota doesn't contract with us directly, but we have U.S. Fleet Source who does provide us with some Toyota models today. And how are the people that drive the cars reacting? Do you get that feedback? Do you look to them for what they're thinking about these things? Crystal? We sure do. So we get a lot of, um, you know what? It's the really exciting car right now, 
right? So some of these, especially the new all electric pickup trucks, folks are really excited to get in them and try them out. Even in our federal law enforcement community, there's a lot of excitement to get out there and try the Mustang Mach-E, the F-150, try them in, you know, upfit opportunities there. We have several LE options in electric today. I would say that, you know, we're really listening closely to all the fleet managers out there and to the drivers to get feedback from them on their experience of transitioning to this new electric fleet. So very interested in what they have to say and make sure that we can meet their needs. We're speaking with Crystal Philcock. She's Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation and Logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, and with Christina Kingsland. She is Acting Deputy Director of Fleet, both at the GSA. And what about the chargers? I mean, the charging situation is really the more, I guess, logistically challenging than buying cars themselves. And what's the status of chargers? Where are they? Are they in all GSA-operated facilities or what? We are really pushing charging infrastructure first. It's absolutely key to make this whole effort work. And so we're working closely with agencies to make sure that they have charging infrastructure in place, that it's in locations that work for them, that they have ways to pay for that charging if they're out and roaming around. And so really working closely with our agencies on that. Um, I don't know, Christy, if you want to talk about the contracts a little bit we have in place. Sure. Our GSA administrator, Robin Carnahan, has really challenged us to be that one-stop shop for charging infrastructure needs, and GSA is uniquely positioned to provide that. The Federal Acquisition Service, we have the authority to provide the equipment and ancillary services for charging stations. And then our public building service, the other side to GSA, of course, managing those federal facilities, they have developed IDIQ contracts available for use for not just GSA managed facilities, but other agency managed facilities too, to do that design build construction, that larger construction that in many cases is needed for planning out and actually implementing larger charging infrastructure. But then we have blanket purchase agreements from the multiple award schedules where agencies can come and just buy the equipment itself or consulting support to prepare for that charging long-term. The two together, you can get full service if you need it from GSA through PBS. They can provide that project management support and you know help you out with all those charging infrastructure requirements on federal properties. Because sure. it is important to note that the most charging instances are going to happen where the vehicle is garaged. So from a federal perspective, we have to prepare for that so we can operate those electric vehicles. Yes, because the logistics, I imagine, vary a lot. You know, I walk to baseball games, you know, and you see down into the garage of the transportation department building down near the ballpark in D.C., and that's a modern, nice garage. It's so nice. The floors are painted, et cetera. That's an easy place to say, well, let's take this row and put in chargers. But what about some building out in South Dakota where everybody parks outside and it gets to be 15 below for two months of the year, that's a different situation to get those cars charged, presuming the people out there want electrics. It is. And, you know, when you're looking at those types of conditions, those very cold conditions, that may not be the most ideal place where you want to have an electric vehicle. Maybe you want to think through how you're going to deploy your fleet. 
if you have offices in those kinds of climates as well as in warmer climates. And so that's why it's important that we're working so closely with agencies because they have such varied missions. Like the Forest Service needs some off-road vehicles. The national parks need buses to carry visitors around. So lots of different missions out there. And we're working closely with each agency to make sure that we're creating a fleet for them that works for them. And I have to ask you, just because it's a personal interest, a lot of agencies like the Park Service also have fleets of motorcycles and the electrics there, that's a different situation. They don't go very far. Is that something you're evaluating or have agencies asked you to evaluate those? I know you have a personal interest in motorcycles. I don't believe we have any of those on contract right now. Not to say that we won't in the future, but not at the moment. All right. So just a quick question about, again, the big ones, because you know, living in D.C. environs, you do see them go by and see people climb in and out of the classic suburban. Are those electric and can people be served by electric versions of those if they exist at this point? Certainly. As long as the model is available, whatever the use case is, you know, agencies can make the choice to go electric there. And in some cases, quite a few of the cabinet level secretaries have chosen to switch to an electric vehicle for their primary vehicle, um, moving them around, including our administrator, Carnahan, has a couple of electric vehicles that we use in our headquarters. But are these the magisterial ones that are long and black that maybe even have a flag on each fender? <laughs> maybe not quite that large just yet, but I think the industry is going to get there. All right. Sounds like you're moving that direction, though, pretty steadily. Mm-hmm. Christina Kingsland is Acting Deputy Director of Fleet. Crystal Philcox is Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation, and Logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, both at the GSA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get-involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw uh, send in my information, and 
lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism and. And, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. 
um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do, uh, was to, to, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities and you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together we still have traditional uh teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams all intellectual disabilities but this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot i think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.